Well, thank you, Mark. So good to be able to talk to God. We don't think about it. We just take it for granted sometimes, and we forget that we're, we're talking to the God of the universe when we pray. And more importantly, he's listening, which is fantastic. And that he knows all of these little concerns, like little concerns like little preemie babies, <laughs> and little concerns like COVID. They're all little to him, and he cares for all of them. And that's what we're looking at today. We're, we're at the end of our, our little mini-series on the 316s, where we have looked at chapter 3 and verse 16 of various books of the Bible. And it may seem like sort of a little gimmicky way to go through Scripture, just picking chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, but what picking 316 does is it causes us to dwell on verses and go to books that we wouldn't normally go to. There's only one chapter 3, verse 16 in any book of the Bible. And so from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we have been all over Scripture and all over topics that we might not normally rest on. So Philippians 3.16, we looked at holding on to what we have attained. Ruth 3.16, what the man has done for us. James 3.16, we contemplated wisdom that is from above versus the wisdom of the earth. Genesis 3.16, we looked into gender and the image-bearing of God. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, we contemplated how the implications of us being the temple of God and what that means. And in Colossians 3.16, last week, we looked at music and doctrine and liturgy and treasuring Christ and giving thanks to God through music and its importance in our discipleship. So now in this series, we finish off on the mountaintop of 316s, of course, John 316. Martin Luther called this verse the Bible in miniature, as the entire story of the Bible is expounded in this one verse. Another writer called John 316, an ocean of meaning fit into a drop of text. Man, I wish I'd come up with that. That's a fantastic quote. Um, But that is John 3.16. It is an ocean of meaning in a drop of text. And I can't think of any Christian I know that has not been deeply affected by this verse. For many Christians, it is the verse in which they discovered the gospel, in which it all sort of crystallized for them, and they understood the love of God, and they understood the importance of Jesus Christ, and they recognized that the only life for them was in trusting in Jesus. At the same time, it's a verse that is just as often taken out of context. We forget that in John 3.16, Jesus is actually speaking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, and he's speaking with a purpose. This is part of a very important chapter, John 3, which is Jesus clarifying Nicodemus' understanding of who the Messiah is. And we often get our understanding of who God is and who the Messiah is, who Jesus is, and how he fits into our salvation. And so the verse is often taken out of context, and it's often misunderstood. The the danger of brevity, with all of the Bible summarized in this one verse... The danger of brevity is reductionism. When you take the entire story of the Bible and summarize it, you're bound to gloss over some meaning. And when I say that, that observation does not take anything away from the depths of this verse. Rather, that observation demands that we dive more deeply into it to understand John 3.16, that it's not just a bumper sticker. 
that it's not just a sign in the background at a baseball game. That John 3.16 is not just a um, mantra that we can recite and consider ourselves finished with what the Bible has to teach us about God. It invites us to dive deeper into those depths. But too often, people do treat John 3.16 as sort of an incantation or sort of a mantra. Um, They basically take the attitude of, you know, don't try to talk to me about Paul and Peter and James and the apostles and doctrine and, you know, all of that, you know, sort of egghead Christian stuff and theology is of no use to me because I have John 3.16. God loved the world and he sent Jesus. You see, God's love, we don't have anything to worry about. I have John 3.16, that's enough for me. Don't, Don't trouble me with anything else. Well, maybe you do have everything that you need in John 3.16, but do you really know what John 3.16 is saying? And more importantly, do you understand if John 3.16 applies to you? So the theme of this verse and the theme of all Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus in chapter 3 is of the utmost importance, because what Jesus is trying to say to Nicodemus and what he is teaching him and then us is the love of God displayed in the salvation of mankind. There is no more important topic for us to understand than that. So we need to dive into the depths of this simple verse. We need to dive into its profound pointers towards the reality of who God is and his relationship with us. And we need to make this verse personal to us. It's a verse that we can anchor our life on. It's a a verse we must anchor our life on if it's to be eternal life. Now, there's been lots of approaches to this verse over the centuries, Today, I want to mainly consider John 3.16 in four ways. We are going to consider the object of God's love, the degree of God's love, the manner of God's love, and the reception or the receiving of God's love. The object, the degree, the manner of God's love, and how to receive it. This is John 3.16, and I'll just pray before we begin looking into God's Word. Father God, We ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, open our minds, give us eyes to see, remove the scales, remove the blindness, remove any stubbornness, remove any preconceptions of what we already think we know, and teach us by your word, teach us by your Holy Spirit, that we can take John 3.16 forward in our lives in a new light, a new appreciation, and a new understanding of what it tells us about you and us and the world and how you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 3.16. I'm sure just about every single person who's listening to me right now knows this verse, but I'm going to read it anyway. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So as we consider what that little verse is saying about love, the first thing I want us to do is acknowledge that the originator of this love that the verse is talking about towards the world is God. It's God the Father. As we look into the Bible and we consider the mystery of the Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit in the personhood of God, the originator of love proposed to us here is God the Father. And this is important because we need to do away with any kind of silly notion and sometimes lazy notion that the Father is a perpetually angry, grumpy old man who Jesus had to come along and teach the Father how to be loving towards his creation. That is not how it works. 
God loved the world. The mission of love that sent Jesus to the earth was God's mission. It was his plan. It was the Father's plan. Ephesians chapter 1 opens up with Paul's praise to the Father. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So right off the bat, before we get into these four different parts of God's love, understand it is the Father's love. He's the architect of our salvation, the originator of love. And we need to set aside any notion that we have that Jesus is pleading with the Father who is reluctant to love us. And only with a very convincing argument and effort can Jesus convince this stubborn and reluctant Father to finally relent and save us. There is no reluctance in God to save us. The Father loves us. It was his plan to send the Son. His plan to redeem us. There is no difficulty in the Father loving his people. God so loved the world, he sent his love in the form of his Son. So if this love originates from God, we can know it is a love like no other. There is no love higher, there is no love more perfect, no love is more effectual and effective in its accomplishing its purpose, and no love is more complete than this God-originating love. But what is the object of God's love? We're told it's the world. God so loved the world. Well, what is the world? And when we say that verse, we generally just think of, oh, God just loved the world. Like, there's the world. God loved the world. He just loves all the people in it. But as you dig into what the world, word, world means in Scripture and how the world is used as opposed to the kingdom, when, when Scripture speaks of the world, we have to understand that the world is a description of all that is in opposition to God. So when it says God so loved the world, he means the whole world and all tribes and people and ethnicities and languages and backgrounds in it. But when it says God loves the world, the world you understand in Scripture is that which is comprised of humankind in sin. The world is apart from God rebellious towards God, outside of the glory that God intended for humanity. We're told that Satan is the God or ruler of the world in John 12, 31 and 2 Corinthians 4. The world is under the influence of Satan. The world is enemies of God. We don't have to read very far in the headlines of the news to know that this is true. As a whole, we are a violent, selfish, wasteful, discontent people who inflict harm on each other. From the playground with kids, through our families and marriages, into business and politics, right up into ethnic wars and enslavement. The picture of the world is a people rebellious against God and who participate in violence towards each other at various levels. That's what the Bible means when it talks about the world. The world, in God's eyes, is not this big kumbaya, sort of everybody there together on the planet in harmony. When God says he looked at the world, he looked on that world. He looked on those who were rebellious against him, enemies of him, those who are full of discontent and selfishness and greed and wastefulness. And this verse says that God looked on that world and he so loved that world. 
Romans 5.10 spells this out as clearly as possible. Paul says it clearly. While we were still enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were still enemies, while we rejected God, while we shook his fist at God, while we rejected him, he reconciled us through the son. He sent the son to a world that hated him. God never looked on the world or the people that he has saved and said, oh, they're just so lovable. They're like a big box of puppies. I just can't resist loving this world. Like, look at them. Aren't they so cute with their big puppy dog eyes looking up at me? They're, so, they're such treasures. I just have to love them. That is not why God loves the world. He does not look on the world and say, oh, what a cute box of puppies. I just can't resist my love for them. No, God looks on a world that is stiff-necked and stubborn and forgetful and wayward and selfish and ambitious and rebellious, and God says, I love them. God looks at a box of cockroaches and says, I love them. And I'm not going to leave them there in their mess. And God looks at you. You're part of the world. God looks at you the same way, no matter how stubborn, how rebellious, how selfish, how deceitful, how violent, how thoughtless, how arrogant, or anything else that you have been, God still says, I love you. And you say, but I've hated God. I've shook my fist at God. I've rebelled against God. I have mocked him, and I've mocked his people. I've laughed at stupid Christians my whole life. And God says, yes, and I love you. And my love is for you, and I've made a way for you to experience my love. So we have to fix our minds on the object of God's love. God's love is the world, the rebellious, broken, sinful world. God loves you. The object of his love is you, even when you were his enemy. And he loved the world to a degree that we can barely comprehend. The The degree of God's love is so deep and powerful. The operative word in this verse is so. God so loved the world. Not just God loved the world, but God so loved the world. And it isn't that God loved the world in some warm, sentimental way. But God, this verse tells us, loved the world very specifically to a degree and to a magnitude that's expressed in how his love was shown. The so here doesn't mean that God loved the world so much, which is how we often read it. And that's not wrong, because God does love the world so much. But when you're reading this verse, the so means this is how God loved the world. How did God love the world? He loved it so. He loved it this way. He loved it thusly. This is how God, in this fashion, this is the degree to which God loved the world. And the verse tells us that he gave his only son. God gave the world his son. That's how he loved the world. And as you read through scripture, you'll occasionally see that sometimes angels are called the son of God in Genesis 6 and Job 1. But angels are not the only son the one and only Son of God. Sometimes, as you read through the Bible, men are called the sons of God in Exodus 4 and John 1.12 and Romans 8.14. But men or women are not the only, the one and only Son of God. Not the only begotten. The Greek word here is monogenes, or single child, the one gene from God. 
So Jesus is not an angel who is created to suffer on behalf of God, which some people will try to tell you that Jesus isn't really God. He's just an angel. He's a created being that God made. I don't want to be the one who gets to heaven and try to explain to God that he did not love us enough to suffer himself. God does not sit in heaven and say, I love this world so much that I'm going to create another being to go and suffer on my behalf so that I don't have to suffer. I'll just create a scapegoat to go and suffer. Boy, I don't want to have that conversation with God. Jesus is not an angel. He's not created. Jesus is God. God says, I love the world so much, I will come and suffer. I will die for you. So don't ever think that Jesus is an angel. Jesus is not a man who God just looked out like Abraham or Moses and said, oh, there's a good guy. I'm going to put my spirit on him, and he's going to be my Messiah. Jesus is not a man. Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is the only eternal son. And that's the degree of God's love, that he gave his only uncreated, co-equal, co-eternal person of the Trinity. That's the manner of his love. He gave his son to that rebellious world. And we're told specifically he gave his son. The degree of God's love is shown in what he gave his son over to. We think of God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and we think, oh, isn't that nice? Jesus came down from heaven, and he came and he dwelled here, and he, you know, he lived among us, and he taught us things. This was not a vacation for Jesus. This was not just a nice, you know, friendly trip you know, blessing us with his presence, and then he, you know, toddles off back to heaven again. God gave his son to that world, to this world. He gave him over, didomi, it means to offer or deliver over, and to press in on the meaning of the implication of what God did when he gave his son to the world. We can look at Romans 4. Paul says, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and then raised for our justification. Or in Romans 8.32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God gave Jesus to the world, and by giving, literally gave him. In a sense, like, lost him. He's gone. And what did we do with him? We tortured and killed him. He was given over to death on a cross. God, The Son of God offered up on a cross, as Jesus says in the verse just prior, as he's trying to get Nicodemus to understand that you don't understand, Nicodemus, who the Messiah is. You're not getting it. And so he says in in John 3, 14, just a little earlier, he says, And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up on a cross, Nicodemus. You don't get it. You don't understand the degree of the love of God. This is a Messiah who's not going to come the first time and rule. This is a Messiah who's going to come and die. He's helping Nicodemus to understand the nature of the Messiah. A Messiah has not come the way Nicodemus expects or to do what Nicodemus thinks he will do. He's come to suffer at the hands of the world, to feel the rejection and the agony, to be despised, to become a curse in order that the curse may be lifted. This is the degree of God's love. The object of God's love is a a world that is an enemy of his, and the degree of his love is that he will give his only co-eternal son, that he would die on the cross for that world. 
But that poses a challenging question. Why does God offer his only son to a rebellious world? What's the outcome? What manner does the love of God finally take? How do we understand the love of God? What is the gift that we receive in all of this from his love? So we come now to the manner of God's love. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the gift. This is, the, this is how the love of God manifests itself. He says, I love you so much, you're not going to die. You're not going to perish. You're not going to be eternally separated from me, but you are going to have eternal life. That's my love for you. Because God loved this rebellious world and loved it to the extreme of sending his own son to die, his love is shown that we would not perish but have eternal life. That's the gift. Well, in order to understand that, what is it not to perish? We need to get a sense of what perishing is and what life is. And through the New Testament, perishing involves suffering the loss of well-being. Both the phrase perishing or destroying that's used in the New Testament and life and life eternal that's used in the New Testament are always used in the continuous sense. We are always in one side of this or the other. We're in a state of continually perishing or we are in a state of continually living eternally, one or the other. We are either perishing or living. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.15, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Paul is saying Christians are like the aroma of Christ. We are to give off the presence of Christ. And the presence of Christ is the same to two different kinds of people in the world. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. It's a process. You're either in the process of perishing or in the process of salvation and of life. And God says Christ is an aroma to both, but we respond to it differently. Those that belong to God or those that belong to the world. Those that recognize the spiritual life or those that despise and deny the spiritual life. Those that worship God in the spirit and those that worship only the material and temporal things of the world. Those that are alive and those that are dead. Those are the two kinds of people, either perishing or alive. Ephesians 2 says it this way, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. There's that world again. You're dead if you're in the world. You're rebellious. You're an enemy. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead or perishing in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You're either perishing or you're alive, and it's the love of God which can bring you from death to life. It's the love of God towards us that he would take those who are perishing and bring them to life. In fact, eternal life, aeonysis life. That word eternal, aeonysis, is the same word that is used for God as eternal. It's an age without end. The new life that God offers us is a life described in the same endlessness that describes himself. We have a beginning, and we can have an endless life. God has no beginning and is endless. But that aeonysis, it's the same word. If God is eternal, then so must our life be eternal. And by the way, it's the same word used for hell. It is an eternal suffering, aeonosis. It is an age without end. So you have these two choices, perishing forever or living forever. 
What state will you be in? And the manner of God's love is this. I've sent my son so that you can no longer be perishing, no longer be rebellious, no longer be an enemy, no longer be eternally perishing, but eternally living with me. That is the substance of God's love. I offer you, God says, eternal life in my presence. And then finally, we have the way of receiving this love. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The verse is clear. Not everyone receives eternal life. Many will perish. Many will continue to perish. They're already perishing, and they will never stop perishing, because it is whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's love is toward a world that rebelled against him, and the degree of his love is such that he would offer his only son to that world to suffer and die. But to receive this love of God, we must believe. And again, remember, come back to the context. This verse does not stand in isolation from everything else. The context here is the correction of Nicodemus, who did not rightly understand the Messiah. Nicodemus thought that he would earn the love of God by his own work of righteousness. He was a Pharisee. He was the most moral, most law-abiding, most religious type of person that you could encounter in Israel. He thought that if he was a diligent enough Pharisee, if he worked hard at being moral, then God would reward his effort at morality. In fact, he, if he did everything right his whole life, God must reward him. He would actually have God in his debt because he would able, be able to point to his righteous works and say, you see, I've done everything, and so now my salvation is on your bill, God. You have to reward me. The Apostle Paul used to think the same way. He says in Philippians 3, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then Paul shifts because he heard the word of Jesus. He heard the gospel from Jesus, and he understands. And in verse 7, he shifts. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, Paul used to be like Nicodemus. He used to have all his confidence in the flesh. I am a moral person. I'm zealous, and I work hard for the church. So God's going to pay me off. Jesus says no to Paul and says no to Nicodemus. He says, God gave the world his son, me, Nicodemus. I am going to suffer and die. An eternal life that you receive is a gift of God's love. You must simply believe God and trust in my work on the cross, not trusting in your work as a Pharisee. Don't ever imagine, Nicodemus, that you can put your moral effort on God's bill and that he will have to pay you for it. God's love and his eternal life is a gift that is given without any merit, without any deserving, without any work. Martin Luther, a faithful Catholic, stumbled over the same problem of the Pharisees and every other religion. This idea that we have to work to earn the favor of God Martin gave up a lucrative career and life as a lawyer. He became a monk. He fasted and prayed and sweated out his faith in a monastery cell. He strove for years and years to control his sinful desire and his sinful nature and to work hard to do good works in order that God would one day say, well done. And then one night he finally discovered that that kind of religion, that that kind of thinking was the way to hell. And instead, 
Martin Luther discovered salvation by faith. He says in his own journals, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is the righteousness by gift of God, namely by faith. He who through faith is righteous shall live. And the light bulb went on for Martin Luther, and he said, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. We do not work to receive the favor of the Father. God has loved us since before the foundation of the world. There is no effort that we can do that will put him in our debt, but he loves us like children and has offered us the gift of eternal life. Whosoever believes will receive eternal life. Well, what is it that we believe then? Well, we believe that there is a God, that God has set himself to this purpose to rescue sinners. John 3.16 is the whole story of the Bible in one verse. The whole story of the Bible is this. God exists, God created, and God has this one purpose. To see himself glorified by the rescuing of his creation. He has a plan and purpose to rescue enemies, to rescue sinners. That's what we believe. And we believe that the plan of God to rescue sinners has come to pass in the person of Jesus who died on a cross exactly as God intended him to die so that there would be a substitution for our sin. We trust the death of Jesus was effectual, that it actually worked. We trust there is a God, that he loves us, that he had a plan, that that plan came to pass in Jesus, and that the plan worked. That's what we believe. That God really is satisfied, and we really are the object of his affection. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And we stake our life on believing and trusting in that clear fact of this universe. God loves us, has a plan, the plan worked. Just believe it. We stake our lives on it. And then the work of Jesus on the cross becomes the sun at the center of our solar system. Everything that we do as Christians, as followers of Christ, begins to revolve around the gravitational pull of that reality. Christ at the center of our solar system. And we revolve around that truth and are illuminated by his light. And this verse says that you can do that right now because it's a free gift. You don't have to perform any duties. You don't have to do any rituals. There are no tasks you have to accomplish to receive it. John 3.16 calls everyone to the exact same realization. It is the most universal verse that exists. Whosoever, we all have the same opportunity and the same way forward. Whosoever believes. Whoever comes to this realization, to recognize that they are of the world and not of God, that they are sinners outside of the life of God, to confess that we can't make ourselves right with God by our own work, that Jesus is the only manner by which God has offered his love to the world, and so then give up on every other false idol that we are putting our hope and satisfaction in, especially the false idol of ourselves and our own righteousness. 
We took the world and all of its false idols and we set it aside and we embrace Jesus and we believe in him. And by believe, we mean trust. We have faith. We trust him. And if you do that, you will begin a new eternal life. No longer a life of perishing, but a life of truly living. You become a little baby Christian. You're born again. And because you're a little baby Christian, don't worry about stumbling. You will stumble. Don't worry about your feelings for the moment, because your, your feelings may not feel exactly the way you expect them to. Don't worry about your assurance for the moment. You're not saved by feelings. You're not saved by your own confidence or assurance. Feelings and assurance will come, but you start your life born again as a Christian by simply believing, by trusting in what God has said. Whosoever believes. Anyone can come from the whole world, no matter what you've done, no matter who your parents are, what religion you think you have, what ethnicity you carry, what questions or confusion you struggle with what rebellion or sin you've committed. Whosoever believes receives eternal life through Jesus. It's incredible truth. There's an old hymn from 1861 whose first verse goes like this. Today your mercy calls us to wash away our sin. However great our trespass, whatever we have been, However long from mercy our hearts have turned away, your precious blood can wash us and make us clean today. That's what John 16 teaches us. It doesn't matter how long you've been away. It doesn't matter how far you've wandered. It doesn't matter what you've done. God's mercy is for you today and every day. It's the whole Bible in miniature. God has a plan. The plan is to love a rebellious world by sending his Son, And the plan worked. It was effective. It was effectual. It accomplished its purpose. Nothing Jesus does is ever ineffectual. What Jesus did on the cross was perfectly effective in saving those who believe and trust in him. And if we do, we get the gift of eternal life in the presence of God, no longer perishing but living. That's the Bible. That's the gospel. That's the love of God. That's his gift. That is John 3.16. So as Christians, we never stop celebrating it. And if you're not a believer, don't ignore it. It's more than just a sign that gets waved in the background behind a field goal. It's the message of your life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for John 3.16. We thank you for everything that it points towards. The depth of it. The beauty of it. The simplicity of it. Father, your, world says, your word says that even a child can understand your plan. Even a child can understand salvation. It is that simple. You love us. You've proven your love. It worked. We just trust you. Father God, I pray whoever hears this now, today, in the future, whatever, they would turn to a friend or to a family member, a co-worker, walk into a church, talk to any Christian they know, and ask them about this, that they, whosoever, no matter what they've done, who they are, they can have eternal life through Jesus Christ, your Son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.